Happy Father's Day, North Shore. Happy Father's Day to all of you guys that are fathers like me and to everyone who has a father. And in the name of our Heavenly Father, um, uh, it's awesome to see you. So my name is Sanjay Merchant. I'm a teaching pastor here. And uh, if we haven't met because of this last year in the pandemic and um, Obviously, it's, we've been apart a lot, and now we're just getting back together, and so if you don't know me, I'm also a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, so I get to come and visit as often as, as possible. Um, this week has been awesome because I came in last Sunday, and I got to spend the whole week here and, um, and see a lot of my friends here in Everett and, um, and fellowship, so we are continuing on in our series in Nehemiah, so if you have your Bible, open to Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4 is where we're going to be today. And what I want to do is I want to pick up um, some of the groundwork that Mark laid for us a few weeks ago, and then some of the themes that Scott gave to us last week. So hopefully it'll tie some things together. So again, we're in Nehemiah 4. Here's how chapter 4 starts off. Shouldn't have given me the clicker. Here we go. Well, I don't have, I don't have it there, but there should be, um, sorry about this, uh, a slide, but you have, your, you have your Bibles. I have it printed here for myself. Nehemiah 4, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is how it opens. Oh, Bibles are coming forward. I forgot about that. It's 21st century. We still pass out Bibles if you need one, but, um, but you have phones, don't you? Okay, so Nehemiah 4. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is how it starts. <clears throat> now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones? out of the heaps of rubbish, and burn ones at that. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if foxes go up on it, uh, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So these individuals are, are mocking the work of Nehemiah and the Jews who are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now again, Mark gave us some historical foundation a couple weeks ago. The Bible often asks us to remember the history of Israel. Now, for Jews, that is their national history. For them, it's remembering the 4th of July, right? It's remembering, it's celebrating Christmas. Those are very American things that we all know. Remembering the history of Israel is not just a national act of sort of um, patriotism, but it is an act of worship to God. And God often asks Israel to remember the great things that he has done. So you'll see throughout the Old Testament, great prophets and leaders, they will often summarize the history of Israel as they're giving a speech. This is an act of worship that they're doing. So it's really important. And understanding the context is really important for us to become better Bible readers, to understand what's going on. So Mark said this, but I just wanna reiterate. Here's the history both the biblical history and also informed by our actual world history. I mean, these two things are, are one and the same. The biblical reports are, in fact, historical. 
So what is happening? Why are they rebuilding Jerusalem? What happened to Jerusalem? Okay, to remind ourselves, around 722 B.C., just to jump back a ways, Sargon II, the king of the Assyrian Empire, which was the major empire at that time in the ancient Near East, the Assyrian Empire, um, would have roughly cut through what we would call Mesopotamia, Iraq, and that sort of area. He conquered Samaria and deported the inhabitants of the northern kingdom of Israel. So around that time, talking about the 8th century BC, Israel had been broken up into two nations. You've got the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And this was after Solomon um, and his sin and God uh, divided the kingdom into two parts and they became two rival nations. They were once one nation and they, and they fell into civil war and God still continued to speak to both nations through prophets and that sort of thing, but they had split. So around 722, Assyria finally conquered the northern kingdom. Now in 626, the prophet Jeremiah foretold that God would judge also the southern kingdom, so that would be the kingdom of Judah in the south, for their injustice and idolatry by permitting the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem. So the Assyrians were the, the power about 100 years before, 722. By the middle of the 7th century BC, the Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians. So the Assyrians were now gone, and now the Babylonians came, and they um, <coughs> would conquer the southern kingdom. Uh, but Jeremiah promised that God would establish a new covenant with Israel by ascribing, inscribing the laws on their hearts. And so this is foreshadowing the New Testament and the Gospels. The law would still be with us, but in a very different way, written on our hearts, not written on tablets of stone. So around 586 B.C., finally, Nebuchadnezzar, we know him from the Bible, we also just know him from world history. Uh, he was the king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He finally did conquer Jerusalem and deported all the inhabitants of Judea, or most of them, the important inhabitants of Judea, to Babylon. And that's the so-called Babylonian captivity, right? It's very famous in the history of Israel, the Babylonian captivity. They actually took the important inhabitants of the southern kingdom and moved them away from their home so that they couldn't regather, regroup, raise an uprising. That's how ancient empires had to work because empires, as opposed to kingdoms, are a collection of a number of kingdoms in a number of different cultures. And so all, all um, um, brought together under one rule, right? Under, in this case, under the Babylonian king. And so how would he rule not only his own people, the Babylonians, but these other people like Jews and others? Well, one means was by deporting some of them and totally destabilizing their culture so they, their leaders can't get together and, and uh, foment a revolt and those sorts of things. So many of the important leaders of Judea end up in, in, in Babylon around that time. Well, as these things go, one empire rises uh, and then begins to decline and then another, another empire um, uh, conquers them. And so finally... Uh, around four, uh, 539 B.C., the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. So you've got the Akkadians first, and they took down the northern kingdom. Then the Babylonians come, and they take down the southern kingdom, and the Jews are now deported. And now Cyrus, the king of the Persian, uh, sometimes called Achaemenid Empire, he conquered the Neo-Babylonians. So Cyrus was actually foretold by Isaiah, uh, by name, um, that he would free the Jews from their Babylonian captivity.
So Cyrus permitted uh, Zerubbabel, Sheshbazzar, and Jeshua, and nearly 50,000 Jews to rebuild the temple of, uh, of Yahweh at Jerusalem. So the city had been entirely destroyed by the Babylonians. I mean, just left in rubble. The walls taken down, the temple taken down. This was the city of God. This was the place for the worship of the true God in the earth. You know, God has a city. He has a place. Under the old covenant, he had a place. The true God was actually worshiped in that temple in Jerusalem, and his presence was there. When his presence left the temple, it was ripe for, for Babylonian conquest. And so God, his presence did, in fact, leave the temple at that time. Uh, and so when they returned, they returned to rebuild the temple so that the true worship of the true God could happen again in that place. And they wanted to rebuild the walls so that all the promises would come true. What were the promises that God made? That he would dwell with them again that there would be a king who would rule over the world in peace. And all of the nations, all of the tribes, all of the peoples would come to Jerusalem and worship the one true God. Those were the big promises. And so under Cyrus, they felt like, now we can go back. God permitted this to happen because of our sin, because of our waywardness, because we worshiped false gods. God allowed this to happen to us so that we would learn now we've learned in Babylonian captivity, and we're never going back. We're going to go rebuild, and God's presence will return, and the Messiah will come, and he'll rule over the earth, and all the nations will come, and he will be the king of the earth. Those were all the biblical promises, and that's what they hoped for. So they returned about 537 B.C., and they began rebuilding the temple and instituting uh, some of the, the religious codes again. Around 480 B.C., remember Esther, the, the queen, uh, married Xerxes, which would have been Cyrus's son, married Xerxes uh, around that time. She was still in Babylon. So most of the Jews were still in Babylon. Very, very few returned. You would think that they would be eager to return. Um, well, after 70 years or so, when your life is settled in a place, uh, it's hard. It, you have to have a good reason. And when you have a good home, a good life, when you have safety and security, uh, the Persian Empire was this massive, wealthy um, empire. Why go to this backwater of rubble, right, and rebuild from scratch? Why do that? So there was just a trickling back. Esther's stepson, Artaxerxes, the third Persian king, uh, around 458, he permitted, finally, Ezra and the Levites to go back and reestablish the re religious community in Jerusalem now that the temple had been built. And then around 444 BC, Artaxerxes permitted uh, Nehemiah to rebuild the, te uh, the walls of Jerusalem and institute some civil reforms. Okay, so that's the history. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 4 and what we just read. This individual, Sanballat, who's mocking the Jews and talking to the armies of Samaria. So who's Sanballat? Apparently, he's some sort of Samaritan Achaemenid governor. So he's a Samaritan, but he's some sort of governor for the Persian Empire. And that's how the Persian Empire worked, from Cyrus all the way to Alexander the Great, the great Greek king who conquered the Persian Empire. They had this massive empire, and the way of governing it was to have local rulers called satraps. And so they would have local governors, and the local governors knew the local customs, knew the local culture, 
and they all reported directly to the king of kings, who was the king of Persia, right? I don't know, that it doesn't say that Sambalat was a satrap or something like that. He wasn't necessarily the main governor. He may have been. It doesn't really say. But he's some sort of Samaritan authority there. Now, the next question is, who are the Samaritans? We've heard of that word before, the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the descendants of Israelites. So people primarily from the northern kingdom, uh, the descendants of Israelites who intermarried with non-Israelites. So at the Babylonian captivity, they not only took important Israelites away to Babylon, but they also imported uh, some foreigners into the land. And so the Samaritans were the descendants of those Meredish. So they were partially ethnically Jewish and then partially ethnically other things. Well, now when that happens, uh, what happened in their worship is they mixed the worship of the true God with other elements, with other religious elements. So when Ezra and Nehemiah come back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, the Samaritans are around and they want to participate and the Jews are very suspicious of this. And now in Nehemiah 4, we see they don't want to participate. They want to stop and stall the whole process, right? And the reason is, is that their religion has now evolved and is a bit different from the revelation that has been given through Moses and the prophets that people like Ezra and Nehemiah preserved and wanted to reestablish. So their religion is also based on the worship of Yahweh, but it's called Samaritanism. It's not Judaism. And that's where we get the distinction between Samaritans and Jews. That's why we call the people of Israel today Jews. They're descendants of Judah who returned from Babylon, right? But the mixed Israelites with others ended up being the Samaritans. And from this point forward, from Sanballat's mocking forward, Jewish and Samaritan communities were separate. They hated each other, and they were sternly warned not to associate with each other. That's why when Jesus tells his disciples that there's a good Samaritan, they're shocked. How's that possible that there's a good Samaritan? None of them are any good. So that's the attitude of Jews towards Samaritans and Samaritans also towards Jews. Their main debate, their main fight was over where was the right place to worship the true God. So you remember Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she mentions that. That's the debate between Jews and Samaritans. Jews say that the right place to worship God is at the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans say, no, no, it's up north in, in what was Israel at a place called Mount Gerizim. And so that's a, a major debate that they have. And they're two entirely separate communities. And so Sanballat, he doesn't want the worship of God to be centered in Jerusalem. It totally challenges his culture, his community, and his own authority as a Samaritan governor. He doesn't want the Jews to return to Jerusalem. He wants Samaritanism to be the religion. He doesn't want Judaism. Right? Does that make sense? And so that's what's going on here in Nehemiah 4. Um, in fact, uh, the Samaritans did end up being a very persecuted community, persecuted by Jews, persecuted later on by Greeks, by Romans, eventually persecuted by, um, by Islamic armies, such that today there are less than a thousand Samaritans in the world. So for that culture, it's a bit of a sad story. But around Jesus' day, there were, they think, maybe a, a million Samaritans, but, but now there's far less. So that's what's happening. Now, in chapter 4, 
Here's the important part. Here's what we see happen. There are threats that Sanballat and the um, Samaritans make, and look at how Nehemiah and the Jews respond to these threats. The first threat is, that I don't know if I need a new battery or, you can help me, feel free to, let's go to the next slide, sorry about that, or my clicking thumb is not what it used to be. Um, they cast these threats at the Jews. First, it's just mockery. Sanballat and Tobiah mock the Jews, plan to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Will they rebuild it in a day? What are you doing? It's, it's rubble. This is ridiculous. Stop what you're doing. What's their response in verses 4 through 6? Here's their first response. Nehemiah and the workers pray that God would turn their taunts against them, and then they get to rebuilding the wall. Their first response is to pray. In fact, in Nehemiah, it just drops prayers on us. In some cases, it doesn't even tell us, and then Nehemiah prayed. It just drops a prayer on us. So you're supposed to pick up that, that there they prayed. Then they cast another threat. It got, they sort of ratcheted up uh, the threat. And the next one, they weren't just mocking, but the Samaritans and other tribes actually plotted to attack the Jews and destroy the wall. So now they actually have a plan of attack. And this has become known to the Jews. And they despair. They're very discouraged by this. In fact, Jews outside of Jerusalem encourage them to just flee and just get away. Because you're going to be overrun. We don't have a chance. We don't have an army here. There's an army outside of Jerusalem. The Samaritan army. And now they've gotten together with others. They're going to come and destroy the whole thing. Jerusalem is never again going to be a place for the worship of the true God. So that was the threat that was being made. How did they respond? Nehemiah and the workers immediately pray for God's protection. And then Nehemiah encourages them to trust God, and he stations uh, soldiers to protect the wall, and then they get back to rebuilding. So Nehemiah 4, threat and response. Threat and response. So what do we learn from this? First thing we learn... Oops. Now it did work. See, we, we did it at the same time. Okay. To pray first and plan second. Pray first and plan second. This is hard to do. It's really hard. I can say, at least for me, it's really hard to pray first and plan second. Because in a crisis, plans and projects and responses and actions just flood into my mind. What can be done? Praying seems to be an important uh, side note at best in many cases, right? We want to plan first. And this is just a, a sort of natural response. Maybe you're wired differently. Some people are wired differently, and I really admire them. Their response and their inclination to just pray first. Um, and I, my first feeling is, uh, oh, we needed to respond really quickly, but okay, let's pray. Uh, and then I'm so glad that I get over that. And I realized that in many cases, my first response and my first reaction maybe wasn't wise. Maybe wasn't what I wanted to do. And praying first was the wiser course of action. In the case of rebuilding the wall, the wall, the job is way too big and they're too weak. I mean, the Samaritans are laughing at them. It's obvious that the job is way too big and they're too weak. Well, now think about the situation that we're in. 
coming out of this pandemic, rebuilding all of the things that we've gone through, and not just us, I mean, the, the entire world has gone through, from minor inconveniences to deep, profound tragedies, right? And we feel like we're waking up again. How, we're rebuilding. Suppose that some people don't like North Shore, and they say, um, what are these feeble North Shore people doing? Will they establish the kingdom of God in Everett in a day? Yes, what they're doing, if some political or social disruption comes along, their entire fellowship will fall apart, right? Suppose they mocked us in that way. They wouldn't be wrong. They wouldn't be wrong. We're too feeble. The job is too big. They wouldn't be wrong at all. But what Nehemiah and the workers realized is that the work that they were doing on the wall, the impossible work of rebuilding Jerusalem from rubble really wasn't their work. It was first and foremost the work of God. And they were only participating in the work that God would do with or without them. And by the same token, we are participating in the work that God is doing here. We often speak of essential workers, right? And these are really important people. And in many places, there are essential workers, people that we give a certain privilege to, like, you have to go first. We need these people, these people, and this sort of uh, thing we don't need right now, but this we need right now. Here's an essential worker. In the kingdom of God, you know how many essential workers there are? Just one, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only essential worker in the kingdom of God. We participate in the work of the Spirit. So what the Spirit is doing here, he would do with or without us. But it's great to be participating in this fellowship and to be together and to be part of it. Like children participating in the, in the work of their father. Imagine a really competent father and their children just want to participate in building whatever he's building. And he's a loving father, and so he just allows them to participate in it. He doesn't need them. In fact, the work probably goes better without them, right? But in that, he's training us and teaching us and bringing us along with the work that he's completing. And he's going to bring it to completion. If you left the work to the children, of course it would fail. But he doesn't leave it to the children. He's doing it himself, and he's involving us in his work. So here's a great example. This week, I told you I got to spend the week here. This week, um, the ministry team had a, had a retreat um, a little bit up north. A wonderful uh, place, just a beautiful place for prayer and reflection and enjoying nature. And so that was all good. Here's the great thing about it. Um, Lisa Jacobs and Sandy Harris did a lot of work to just organize this thing and set all the pieces in place. Um, and then Scott and Pat led this for us. And it was a real time of first prayer, devotion, reflection, fellowship. And as we were, I had no idea what we were going to do. I had no idea what was going to happen. And as we were there, it occurred to me that the whole North Shore ministry team is here in one place, and I'm rarely around because, of course, I have to travel in. And so I get to see everybody in one place, and it occurs to me, this would be a great time to program. This would be a great time to plan. If Scott wanted to say, okay, here's the big vision. I've got you all in one room, and just, you know, get a chalkboard and start coming up with a battle plan, and this is how we're going to rebuild. And this is how we're going to come out of the pandemic. This is how we're going to get back together and make sure our fellowship is full again. And they didn't do any of that. They didn't do any of that planning or programming. If that had happened, I wouldn't have thought twice about it, but it didn't happen. And after the first night of the retreat, and all we did was pray and reflect and, and um, 
and, and read devotionals and encourage one another and then fellowship and laugh, I went back and I was so moved. I didn't realize how badly I needed that and how refreshing it was. And I felt the Holy Spirit with us doing the planning and the programming and the guiding and the leading without our input. It was so awesome. It was so awesome. And then that happened the second day and the third day and the elders were there. It was wonderful. And it occurred to me that this fits perfectly with Nehemiah 4 as I'm thinking about this sermon. It fits perfectly with Nehemiah 4. That's exactly how Nehemiah approached it. Pray first and then once the prayer has been given and the trust in God has been established and God begins to respond and move, then we get to work that he's called us to. But we don't need to figure it all out ahead of time. It was awesome. And, and I feel like everybody felt that way. Well, the second thing uh, that we want to do in response as we think about how Nehemiah and the Jews um, uh, handled the rebuilding of Jerusalem is to commit to rebuilding the kingdom. So commit to building the kingdom. So these Jews had to come from Babylon. It was a huge commitment. They had to travel all the way back from Babylon, leave their lives, and commit to rebuilding Jerusalem. And they built it in 52 days, it says, because they had a will to work. So they were rebuilding the literal walls of Jerusalem. If you asked them, what are you doing right now? I'm rebuilding the kingdom. I'm building the kingdom, the real kingdom. Kingdom of who? Of the Messiah that God has promised. The king of Israel is going to come and rule over the world here. So I've got to build this wall. That's what they actually believed, right? If you ask them, they would say, I'm building the kingdom. Now we say, here in Everett, we believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we doing? We're building the kingdom together. You might say, oh, it's a good analogy, pastor. Yeah, I get it. Okay, they were building. It's a, it's a nice analogy. thing is, it's not really just an analogy. There's only one kingdom. We're actually doing the exact same work that they were doing. So the builders of the wall, if you ever go to Jerusalem and you see the wall of Nehemiah, know that the builders of that wall are actually spiritual ancestors of us. They're doing the exact, they were building the kingdom for the Messiah to come, an actual physical place for Jesus Christ to teach and lead his ministry and to die on a cross and to rise as the Lord of the universe, a coronation that no one expected. And that really happened there in Jerusalem. And now, as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, we don't just worship in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, but now true worship to the Father is embedded in our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what he was revealing. We are actually building the same kingdom. We're actually doing the same work. So where are our bricks? How are we building? A couple quick verses I want to share with you. The first is, if you want to flip over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. This is what Paul says. Uh, God has given apostles and prophets the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is, it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So it turns out that we are actually building, not with bricks of stone, but we are building with one another. We are building with one another, founded on Christ, a new temple. We ourselves are the bricks. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, being the foundation of that temple. So Jesus Christ is the massive stone on which everything else sits, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then Peter says a similar thing, here where he gets even more specific about the fact that we are stones. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have, been, you, you have uh, tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So just like the workers, we ourselves are called out of Babylonian captivity, captivity to sin, into the kingdom of God, and here we are, and we need to get to work building, just like they did in Nehemiah 4. So how do we build? It's stuff that you already know. Right? It's stuff that you already know. We just want to remind ourselves and encourage ourselves to be consistent in these things, and to be happy, and to have life. So fellowship, as you know, is so important. And coming out of this time of social distancing, the pandemic, there were so many medical necessities, and it was difficult. But we need to find a way to get back into fellowship. Our mutual participation matters, right? Um, no brick in itself is uh, strong enough to um, uh, hold back the, Assyrian, uh, not, the Samaritan army. But a wall of bricks joined together is a formidable obstacle. And so fellowship is not just socializing, but rather socializing in Christ which is a deeper, more profound act that really binds us together. So you know that, fellowshipping. Prayer, not just talking to God, but talking in Christ by the Spirit, speaking to God. So, so prayer, together and corporately. Isn't this Christianity 101, right? Fellowship, prayer. Let's commit ourselves to really imbibing and understanding the Word of God. I mean, this is a huge dream of mine for North Shore, that we would really become foundationally biblical people, that understand the Scriptures so deeply and transformatively that we speak it, it just naturally comes out of us, and we see the world in the way that God has um, intended for us to see and understand it, because there are so many distractions, there are so many other ways to see it, there are so many other big claims about how the world is and how it works and what the big answers are that are competing for our minds and our attention and our hearts, it is difficult to go back to the ancient Near East and read about the Babylonian captivity and the return from exile. How's that relevant to 21st century Americans? 
but it's what God has given us so that our minds would be reoriented. And it would sober us up and we could actually see the truth for what it is. But without that, we're, like the scripture before we said, we're thrown about by every wind of doctrine. So there's a variety of ways to do that. I know it's hard to be consistent in biblical reading. My Christian life has been um, uh, cycles of consistent and very inconsistent biblical, even when I was in seminary, there are times of very inconsistent interaction with the Bible. Because I would tell myself, well, I'm studying. I'm studying theological things, and I'm not really devoting myself to Scripture. And my life would become, it would become different. It would feel different. And I would behave differently, and I would think differently. And my thinking and reactions were all out of step with the Spirit. It's not a matter of, um, uh, of memorizing whole books of the Bible or, or reading for hours on end, but simple consistency, the Lord rewards. And so find a good Bible reading plan. Here, here's something that I love. Maybe you guys know about this, the Bible Project on YouTube. Uh, YouTube. It's a huge help for understanding um, uh, whole text of Scripture and giving context so that when you read something, you're not lost. Because otherwise, I mean, if you just dropped in here in Nehemiah 4 and you don't know anything of the history of Israel, it's just, I don't even know what's going on there. So those are huge, helpful guides. If we do these things consistently, we're doing the work of building. Your holiness matters. Our holiness matters. You might think, well, Scott's holiness matters. If Scott isn't holy. Well, this whole thing's going to fall apart. But mine doesn't matter so much. It's not true. Our mutual holiness matters. Any weak brick in the wall and the wall is liable to collapse, right? And so your presence, your holiness matters. Here's another important thing. Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. I just want to give this one tip. We don't practice this so much. Confession. The Bible tells us to confess to one another our sins. And the Lord forgives, right? He's faithful to forgive. That we confess our sins to one another. Let me give you an example of how you can do this practically and start incorporating these things in your life, okay? So again, if you don't have a fellowship like a life group, maybe think about getting one. If you don't have a, a prayer uh, plan or a prayer group, maybe think about getting one. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, do that. Here's another thing that I think is so valuable. A few years ago, I met a couple guys. And they were training for ministry, young guys. And we got talking about really serious things. And these two guys said, well, we want to tell you something, because we've been talking about this a lot with one another. They said, we have really broken sexual histories. They're young guys, training for ministry, and they had no qualms about getting into details. And they needed to do it. They needed to, to express it and for it to, to come out of them. We shared a lot. And they said, both of them said, we, we both we want to get into ministry and we want to get married. But with our broken sexual histories, and both of them said, we're, we're totally um, just at our wit's end with porn addiction. We are in no place to enter into ministry. And we're certainly in no place to be in a relationship. And we both realize we're feeling hopeless. So we talked about it for a bit. And I said, this is what I want to do. I want us to have a confessional group, just the three of us, nobody else. I want us to have a confessional group. And one of the guys said, I don't want to do that. I've done accountability a hundred times. It always fails. It's not going to work. 
It's embarrassing, it's awkward, it's weird, it just sort of fizzles out, and then the next time I see you, we kind of don't want to talk. It actually destroys fellowship, these accountability groups. I'd rather just have this on myself. I don't want to burden anyone else with it. And I can go along, and the Lord is good and great, and he's working in others, but I'm not worth all of that. And I said to him, I understand I've been in accountability groups too, and, and I know what, you're, what you mean by that. I'm not talking about an accountability group. We're not counselors. We're not going to counsel each other. We're not going to offer each other words of wisdom or here's a verse to meditate on or anything like that. That's a lot to do when you're in fellowship with somebody and they need constant help in these ways. It's a lot to be on call constantly, giving them an encouraging word, a little sermon, and things like that. We're not counselors. We're not going to counsel each other. We're not going to preach to each other. That's not what this is. This is a confessional group. What you need is an opportunity to freely and completely confess before, during, or after you're struggling with sin. You need to have a moment to confess. And how are we going to do that? Maybe we bump into each other. Maybe we get together on purpose. Maybe you just text me. Maybe you call me. But we text or call the group, all three of us. And again, before, during, and after... We simply confess. That's all there is to it. This is certainly not the shame club. You're not going to get from any of us, brother, really? Come on. You're not going to get that. You already have enough shame. I don't have any judgments against you. The Lord is working that out in you. This isn't the um, enablement club. We're not saying to each other, oh, it's okay. God understands. It's not okay. It's not okay. But this isn't the shame club, it's not the enablement club, it's the confessional group. And we confess to each other. And what we decided to do is have a definite time frame on it. So this is a really important thing. If you want to do something like this, I would say get two other brothers or sisters in Christ, whatever is appropriate to you, no less, because when it's two, it's just one to the other, and then when both of your lives sort of you feel a little bit awkward and you feel a little bit reserved about this, it can just sort of fizzle away. So you want to have three, and maybe not four or five, because then it starts to turn into a life group. So three is, maybe three or four is a great number. And you put a definite time frame on it. It's not open-ended and indefinite. You don't just do it forever. You put a definite time frame on it, and you let it have its purpose in your life for that time, and just see what the Holy Spirit does. So we said three months. Maybe you, you, you do this with a couple brothers or sisters, and you say, let's do it for a week and just see what happens. And then when it's over, it's over. If you want to pick it up again and do another session, go ahead and do that. If you want to do it with someone else, go ahead and do that. But let it have its own time so it can have its own work in your life. So we had three months. And this is what happened. These two guys are both massively struggling with porn addiction. And as we were talking, and I was trying to convince them to do this confessional group, they, I, I was telling them how you respond to sin and things like porn addiction. And they said, yeah, yeah, but okay, but what do you do? How do you, how do you get out of this? What did God do in your life? And I eventually got to the point where I said to them, there's no magical string of words that I can give you that will make you go, oh, oh, is that it? Oh, all right, well, awesome. I guess, I guess that's over with. There's no magical string of words. It's a process. It's a process and it involves the work of the Spirit in our lives, and it involves transformation. And so I can't tell you any magical words right now, but we can go through this process. Here's what happened in the three months. After about a week, one of the two guys was over the moon. He couldn't believe it. He said, I, I, 
God has done so much in my life in this short time frame. My heart has totally changed. I don't even feel the way that I felt a week ago. He felt the presence of the Spirit so deeply in his life. He said, this is, I, I have so much hope. I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to get married. In fact, I'm thinking right now about talking to a girl. I, I would have never thought about this, but there's this girl that I really like. I wouldn't have never thought about it, but I'm actually going to talk to her. I actually have hope about this. And he wanted out. He's like, sin is broken in my life. I said, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> Don't go anywhere because we've committed to this for three months. Trust me, it's not over for you. The other guy, his life went down the tubes. It got so much worse. And he was texting by the hour. It was bad. It was really bad. He was mortified. He was so embarrassed. And he said, look, you guys don't need me. It sounds like it's going great. You know what? I'm just going to back out of this. It's, it's too embarrassing, and I'm... I'm dragging this whole thing down. You guys are rejoicing in the Lord, and I'm messing this whole thing up. And I said, you're not going anywhere either. This is exactly how the Holy Spirit intends for this group to work, at least in our time in these three months. What's happened is that the Holy Spirit has placed his steadying hand on one of you guys and really equipped you with Christ's righteousness such that you feel it so deeply that falling into sin feels as relevant as falling into the, the Grand Canyon, Right? We're hundreds of miles from the Grand Canyon here in Everett. How worried are you about falling in? Uh, approximately zero. That's how worried he was about falling into sin because God's steadying hand was on him. And God lifted his steadying hand off the other brother and showed him what he is without God's grace. And it was, it was terrible. It was ugly. So I said, this is what we have to do. For the brother who is, who is just experiencing so much joy and freedom and feels as if he's been liberated from sin... We have to mourn with our brother who's hurting and is descending into hopelessness. We have to learn to mourn with him, and we have to bear our, his burdens. So when he texts, we've got to pray. How long do you pray? Four hours would be good, or 30 seconds. Doesn't matter. I would often pray for 10, 15 seconds. Later on, when I had time, I would pray for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you can do. Four hours if you got it in you, knock yourself out, but just pray. So we've got to pray for him. And then I told the brother who's just struggling, and I said, you can't be hopeless. Look at what God is doing in his life. You've got to rejoice with him. And he's like, yeah. I know you're in pain, and you don't want to rejoice with him because you would like to have his joy. But learn to rejoice with him, even though you're in pain. This is how we bear each other's burdens. This is how we build each other up. And we did it for three months, and it was amazing, and it was awesome, and it was transformative. And those guys said, we want to go off and we want to do it. I've got these two other guys and I want to do it with them. And they grew up and they were transformed and they learned uh, some very important lessons from the Holy Spirit as to how to resist sin. And they're both in ministry. One of them's married. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Um, I didn't plan all of that. I didn't think all of that. I just sort of said, let's do this. And so if you want to incorporate something like that in your life, I think it's a really powerful tool. Prayer, fellowship, confession, devotion to Scripture. Let me call the uh, worship team back up. And I just want this to be a time of encouragement where we remind ourselves to be consistent in these things and to honor God in these things. Um, 
when you're struggling with prayerlessness, when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling financially and you need a plan, you need a program, when you're struggling with your kids, um, consistently turning to the Lord is, it feels like um, a side note, right? It feels like a side note. But practice these things now. Get in the habit of practicing these things now and see the transformative work that it does. And again, our mutual fellowship in this is so important, like stones um, mortared together. So important. Uh, your holiness and your participation, as well as mine, is so important. And what we're doing is we're, we are honoring the work that God is doing in and through us. It's not us doing it. Well, let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, in this time, by means of your Holy Spirit, just continue to remind us of the work that you're doing at North Shore, the work that you're doing in our hearts with one another. We commit ourselves to the work of building. First, by coming to you in prayer as we are now, we ask you to come with the plan, come with the program, produce the, the, the process, and give the progress, Father, by means of your Holy Spirit. You will do the work of building your kingdom here in Everett at this little outpost, North Shore Christian Church. You will do that work. This is your city. This is your country. This is your world. We are participating as emissaries in your work. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you enable us and we take joy in participating in the work that you do in and through us, knitting us together in fellowship and love, um, knowing one another. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be in fellowship. We just pray that your Holy Spirit descends on us, giving those things to us, and that we would participate in your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.